0: Bibles please to Matthew chapter 10. This morning we're in the sixth message in a mini-series that I'm doing here where we're studying the lives of the twelve apostles. And we've arrived here in the tenth chapter after many, many months, actually more than years of study in this first book of the New Testament. And we paused once again here at the beginning of this tenth chapter to talk about twelve men who are the most important men, among the most important people that have ever lived. And when most people give an assessment of figures in history that have actually changed history, almost always at the top of the list will be Jesus Christ. Even for people who aren't Christians, Jesus will head the list of the most famous people that have ever lived, the most influential people in history. And although Christ has not been here for 2,000 years now, yet he wields more influence over the lives of people than any other person that has ever lived. And you and I, of course, know why it's true. It's because Jesus is God. He is the immortal God. He's the creator of all things that are visible and invisible. Uh, He has always existed and he always will exist. And so in one sense of the word, putting Jesus on, a, uh, on the top of a list of men that are influential and famous is really uh, it's kind of a degrading to him, him one, in one way because Jesus does not belong on a list. He's his own list. He's a list of one. He's the Son of God who left heaven and became incarnate. He gave his life for the sins of men and he took that life again when he arose from the dead. And so those things put him on a list of one. But if you like to make lists, and in your mind, Jesus is on top of your list, and that's the way that you pay homage to him, then so be it. In Matthew chapter 10, we also find a list. And if you want to count influential men, then surely you have to put these men on your list because they changed the course of history. Uh, Our presence in church today, the fact that we're even able to meet together to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ is because of what these men did in preaching the gospel to others. And if they had failed, then all the world is doomed because the message that they were told to tell is the message of eternal life. It's the message of how that we can know Christ. It is the gospel of Christ. And without these men, we would never know about it. Well, who are the men? And, and what were they like? Well, we have the list of their names here. So if you'll stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. We're going to read the list of the names again. And our focus today is going to be on the last man in this list, the very last name. So, Matthew chapter 10, verse number 1. And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now, the names of the twelve apostles are these the first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the Publican, James the son of Alphaeus, and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many blessings that you've given us. Help us, Lord, as we look into your word today to speak the truth to your people. Give us something that will encourage us and bless our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In the previous messages, we've discussed 11 of the men that are in this group, and they range from the most prominent of the apostles, who was Peter, to two men that we talked about last week whose names are the only thing we find about them in Scripture. That's James, the son of Alphaeus, and also Simon the Canaanite. Some of these men spoke no words of Scripture, uh, and yet we know that all of them were spokesmen for Christ because all of them were given the same commission that we just read about here. All of them could cast out devils. All of them could heal people from sicknesses. All of them were foundational in the building of the church. And so all of them, I think, deserve to be high on anyone's list of the most influential men in history. And yet, in this list, there is one who stands in stark contrast to the others. Now, today we're going to talk about him. In previous messages, we've gone back over the list of all the names, and I've repeated that and repeated that. But we're not going to do that today. We're just going to start here, and you, and you see it on your listening sheet this morning, just the number 12 at the, top of your, uh, at the top of your page there. The last man on this list is Judas Iscariot, who is the betrayer. And if Jesus stands at the top of a list of the best men that have ever lived, then Judas heads the list of the worst men that have ever lived. In fact, Judas is so bad that I think that we could say about him that he also heads a list of one. He's just the one on this list. He's the worst person, I think, that ever lived in history. And I don't think that we really have to build a case for that because we know what Judas did. Millions of children are named after Bible characters. Some of them are named after the apostles. We all know someone named Peter. We know someone named Andrew or the Andrews like we have over here. Um, We know plenty of people that are named James and those that are named John. In our congregation, we have a Matthew. We have a Thomas. We know those that are named Philip and Nathaniel. We even have a shortened version of Thaddeus, a very short version of Thaddeus, and that's Thad. But how many of you have have ever met someone named Judas? Now, I'm X number of years old. I'm not going to tell you how old that is. In my entire life, I have never met anyone named Judas. I've never read about somebody being named Judas, uh, other than what we read in the Bible and and around those times. I've never heard anyone referred to in print. I've never seen on television. Judas is a universal name of contempt. And even if you did know somebody named Judas, that you'd be so skeptical of them, you probably wouldn't have anything to do with them anyway. So nobody names their kids Judas. What happened? I mean, how does anyone really become that infamous? There's no one who's ever taken a name and destroyed it like Judas. Nobody's ever had a name that leaves such a bad taste in your mouth. Jesus is the sweetest name we know. But when we speak the name of Judas, it's almost too bitter for us to even stomach. Well, let me give you some information about Judas. Many of the apostles' lives, and we've looked at this, they're, they're sketchy at best, but we do have a lot of information in the Scriptures about Judas. Now, first we would look at the contrast in his name. Judas is not really a bad name. And I think that we probably feel that way because he was such a bad guy that we're convinced there has to be something sinister in that name. I mean, in those days, people often named their children with names that were descriptive of them. And we would think, well, if a guy has the name Judas, knowing what he did, then surely there has to be a very, a very strange thing about this name or something wrong with the name. But it was actually a very common name until Judas took it and destroyed it. We noticed last week that there was another disciple, Levius Thaddeus, that also had the name of Judas. Judas is actually a form of Judah. And Judah is one of the names of the 12 sons of Jacob. It's a tribe of Israel from which Jesus was born. And ironically, it's a name that means Jehovah leads, or as some say, praise Jehovah. And the great contrast of this name is that Judas could have been, and he should have been, somebody who was led every day by, by God, because he was there right in the presence of Jesus Christ, who is God. He's someone who should have praised God every day for that wonderful privilege that he had of knowing Jesus Christ. And yet, he followed Satan every step of the way. He's also known as Judas Iscariot. We're familiar with that. And Iscariot is not really a bad name either. Iscariot is just a, a name that describes where he was from. He, he was from the town of Kirioth. He was from a town in uh, Judea right next, right close to Hebron. And Iscariot simply, Iscariot simply means that he was from this town of Kirioth. And, and people that are from that town or from that town in the Bible days or after all this happened, uh, you have to think, well, you know, we've got a pretty bad name here. Maybe they changed the name of that town or needed to. But it kind of helps us to understand how the Judas, Judas fit into the group. He actually didn't fit in. And that's because he was a southern Jew. Uh, all of the rest of the disciples were Galileans, and Judas was the only one in this group that was from Judea. And the southern Jews always felt a superiority over the Jews that were from the north. And so the disciples, the other apostles, were probably pretty accommodating in receiving him, but Judas was not the other way around. He was sort of a loner in this group. Now, in this country, we have, or we believe, that those from the south have good reason to feel superior to those from the north. Uh, But when you have this kind of prejudice in Israel, that really led to a lot of difficulty for Jesus and the apostles. Because one of the knocks about them, when they came down to Jerusalem, came to Judea to preach, all those southern good old boys, southern uh, good old Jews down there are always thinking, those guys are from the north. Uh, those guys don't have any business preaching the word of God. They, they don't know what they're talking about. They're northerners. Who are these guys? Nobody from Galilee has any business preaching the word of God. Everybody from the north is an ignoramus. That's what the guys in the south, the Jews in the south, fought about those that were from the north. They're ignorant. They're uneducated. And that often was a problem for, for Jesus and the rest of the apostles. We would also notice about him his, his commitment to Christ. Uh, he, he was really committed to him. I mean, Judas hung in there. And we'll, we'll talk about what that commitment was like. But he hung in there with Jesus when, when all the teachings really became difficult. And there were many people that followed Jesus and they would stay for a while. Uh, they were enamored with all of the miracles that he could do. I think that they often enjoyed his wisdom, especially when he used it against the scribes and the Pharisees. But when Jesus began to preach the hard things, like we were speaking about last week, when things really got tough, people didn't want to follow him anymore. When Jesus said things like this in John 6:48, I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Now, that was a very hard saying. This this bread that I give you, he says, is my flesh. And you remember, as we looked at that last week, many of the people that were following Jesus, when they heard him say things like this, when when he talked about his blood, when he talked about his flesh, the Bible says they went away from him, they walked with him no more. Many people could not handle the ridicule of following Jesus, the scorn that went with it. Later here in Matthew 10, we'll learn that Jesus was sending these apostles out, these 12 out, as sheep among wolves. But Judas was committed enough to hang in there with all the others when these sayings got really hard. When others went away, Judas was still there following. Well, that begs the question, was, was he saved? Did he follow Jesus because he was committed to him as God? And the answer to that is no. He never believed in Christ with saving faith. He continued to see Jesus as others in Israel hoped that Jesus would be. They were looking for someone who would bring in the kingdom immediately, looking for someone who would throw off that yoke of Rome and Judas knew that if he, was, if he was there on the ground floor with this, if he was there in this movement from the beginning, then he would be set for life. Because if Jesus could pull this off, then he was one of that original 12. And he would receive all the benefit from that, being 12 guys who are the insiders. So he was committed to Christ, although committed in the wrong way. And that brings me, thirdly, to the conflict in his choice. Judas followed Christ... Because he was chosen to follow. He was predestined to do what he did. And yet at the same time, he did exactly what he wanted to do. Jesus was never fooled by Judas. From the very beginning, he knew what he was. John 6, 63 says, It is the Spirit, Jesus speaking, it is the Spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are Spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, and who should betray him. And in the 70th verse of that chapter, Jesus said, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? So Jesus chose him knowing full well what he could do. Because not only is Jesus omniscient God, but this was also prophesied in the Scriptures hundreds of years before. For instance, the Old Testament tells us in Psalm 41, verse 9, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 55, verse 12, For it was not an enemy that reproached me, for then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him. And then... There's an amazing prophecy in Zechariah where it predicts the exact price that was put on Jesus' head. Zechariah chapter 11. And I said unto them, If ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price thirty pieces of silver. And the Lord said unto me, Cast it unto the potter, a goodly price that I was prized out of them. And I took the thirty pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Now, folks, things get a little bit sticky right here because if you don't believe in predestination, you're going to have a lot of trouble dealing with the issue of Judas. I'd like you to turn to John chapter 17 for just a moment. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed to the Father, and he mentions Judas in this prayer. Now, if you don't know John 17, you really ought to read this because it's an amazing chapter. And it shows us that everything that happened to Jesus was according to a plan that was devised before God ever created the world. And everyone that is to be saved was already in that plan from the very beginning. Now, you can peruse the entire chapter at another time, but I want you to notice here what it says about Judas. Judas. Uh, Judas, or Jesus is, is praying for all those that were given to him by the Father, and that's according to the covenant between the Father and the Son before the world began. And this is what Jesus says in verse number 12. He says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Well, who is the son of perdition? That's a word that means destruction. It means damnation. Well, it refers to Judas. And it doesn't mean that that Judas was chosen from the foundation of the world like the others, and then Judas became lost. What it means is that his disposition was well known to God. It means that he was doomed for destruction. And then Jesus adds to this why it happened. He says that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And so there is no mistaking that this was in God's plan from the very beginning. Jesus chose Judas, and he knew what he would do. And I know that that poses a problem for many, many people. If God predetermined for this to happen, was Judas responsible for his actions? Did God actually do this? Did God orchestrate the plan for Judas to betray Christ? Did he do that? Well, listen to Jesus as he speaks during the Last Supper. Let me read to you, and we can determine from this, did God orchestrate this this whole scenario? Verse number 19 in Luke 22, And he took bread, and gave thanks, and break it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. But woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. Jesus knew it all. It was determined to happen this way. He said, the one who is going to betray me is here. Jesus said, woe unto that one by whom I am betrayed. Then listen to how John records this in John chapter 13. He says, I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. And there, Jesus quotes the Scripture I gave you just a moment ago from Psalm 41. He says, I chose him to do this. He's here to do what the Scripture said that he would do. So Judas was fully responsible for his actions, even though it was predetermined by God. Now, people, just as there are many disciples that that could not walk with Jesus after he had... Preach those hard sayings and use those hard sayings. There are many people that do not want to walk with the doctrine that I'm talking to you about right now. Many people refuse this. It's hard for them to believe. But we can't ignore this. We can't explain this away. This is God's predestination, but it also shows us man's responsibility. Now, that is a problem in my mind. It's a problem in your mind. And the reason is our minds are simply too small to comprehend this. We do not know how human responsibility and God's sovereignty meet. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, compared this to parallel train tracks. You have a right track, you have a left track, and those tracks run parallel to one another. It looks to us like those tracks are never going to meet. But as you watch them going off into the distance, you see those two tracks converging. Well, in this life, we're always walking on the track, We can't ever see them converging. We can't make them converge. But in eternity, those two things do come together, and only God knows how. Now, while we're living here, we can't deny the truth of this. Both of these things are taught in the Bible very clearly. And if you try to take one of those tracks away, either God's predestinations, God's determinations, or try to take away man's responsibility, then you're going to have a train wreck in theology. It's just not going to work. So you have to look at this in the case of Judas. It's so clear. It's clear in reading John 17. It's clear in reading Acts chapter 2. And there Jesus told the Jews that Christ was delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And yet at the same time he said, You have taken him and by your wicked hands you have crucified him. So you have to leave this thing alone. You you can't reconcile this. You take away God's sovereignty and take away man's responsibility one or the other, and you'll make a mess of this story. It can't happen, as the Bible says it does, without both of those things being true. So Judas was not left alone. I mean, Judas didn't just accidentally stumble into this group. He wasn't there because Jesus was ignorant. This is according to God's divinely ordered plan. Jesus chose him for this purpose. And yet everything that Judas did, he did because he wanted to do. It was all, though, in God's eternal plan. Jesus said, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? Now, fourthly, we need to discuss the cover-up in the deception. Judas was a poster boy for hypocrites. He was a really good hypocrite. Now, that, that's an oxymoron, of course. A really good hypocrite is one that nobody suspects of being a hypocrite. On the night of the Lord's Supper, Jesus told the disciples, one of you is going to betray me. And all at once, all the hands went up and they said, we know who that is. That has to be Judas. Judas is the hypocrite. Ju- Judas is the one, he's a Judean, you know. He's not like the rest of it, so it has to be Judas. No, Judas was a misfit that was good at fitting in. That's another oxymoron, a misfitting, a good-fitting misfit. So no one suspected Jesus. The hands went up, but not one of them said it must be Judas. They all said, is it I? Lord, is it I? So they suspected themselves before they ever suspected Judas. Now watch for a moment here, how good he is at the deception. Go over to John chapter 13. Let me give you some of the preliminaries here, and I don't really have time to read all of this, and you should read it later. But it's the Last Supper, and Jesus has just told the disciples that one of them would betray him, and they're all wondering who this could be. So Peter leaned over to John. John was sitting next to Jesus, and he said, John, ask him who it is. And Jesus answered John, but apparently there was... Nobody that heard the answer. And something transpired between Jesus and John at that time so that John didn't tell him, tell the rest of them, what Jesus said. Jesus said quietly to John, It's the one that I give the piece of bread that I have dipped. And then Jesus dipped that bread and he gave it to Judas. Now, if you look at verse number 27, it says, And after the sop, that's the bread that was dipped, after the sop and, and Jesus had given it to Judas, it said, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him that thou doest do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them fought because Judas had the bag that Jesus had said unto him Buy those things that we have need of against the feast or that he should give something to the poor. He then having received the sob went immediately out and it was night. Now here you see how good that Judas was in the deception. The disciples didn't know why Judas got up and left the room. Now, they assumed that because he had the bag, that meant that he was carrying the money. He was the treasurer. He's the one who kept the funds. They assumed that Jesus was sending him out to buy something for the feast or that he was supposed to go out and give something to the poor. He was the treasurer of the group. That's why you need to keep your eye on the church treasurer. You never know what he's going to do with the money. So do you know what? You know what? Judas did with those funds? Well, let's, let's go back one chapter to chapter 12, and this is where we have the story of Mary of Bethany, and she's the one who came and broke the vial of perfume and poured it on Jesus. She entered into the room, and she broke this expensive vial of perfume and poured it all out on Jesus. And then Judas spoke up. Chapter 12, verse number 4, Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the bag and bare what was put therein. Now verse number 6 identifies Judas as a thief. He's a thief because he must have already been stealing from that bag. Now he had the collection of all the apostles and they weren't rich by any means. But he was, he was stealing from the group. And so he was staying there with them because he could pilfer that money from them. He was in it for the personal gain. And he was slick enough to stay in the good graces of the apostles. Now Jesus had chosen him, so he kept up the ruse. And all the other disciples thought, he's chosen too. He's just like us. They had no problem trusting him. And our text verses in Matthew say that each of the apostles was given power to heal, each of them could cast out demons, and there is Judas right in the thick of all of this. But he is the worst religious hypocrite that ever lived. Now, I can't pass this up when I'm talking about the bag and talking about the funds. God gives his people money to live on, God gives his people money to eat, he gives us money to buy clothes. And he says some of that money needs to be given back. At least 10% of that. That's a good starting place. It's a good starting place for you to give your offerings. Put that in the plate. And the Bible says this, If you don't do that, you rob God. You know, there are a lot of Christians who have the character of Judas. They're robbing God every single week. Well, it's the cover-up. He looks just like the rest. He's deceptive enough to hide this from everyone, so they never suspected. Judas must be the one with the devil. He's the one that will betray the Lord. Now, fifthly, we would look at his corruption in the betrayal, and we needn't think that Judas was very much different from the others in the beginning. In the previous messages, we've seen their failures. They were confused about the kingdom. James and John were jockeying for their position so they could be first in the kingdom, one sitting on the right hand, one on the left hand of Jesus. They thought the kingdom was coming then, so they were looking for the best seats in the house. So all of them were confused about that. And so at the very beginning, all of these disciples following Jesus, they were following him with an element of greed. They were also following him with an element of materialism. That's mixed in with their devotion. But the big difference between Judas and the rest of them is that all the rest of them were transformed completely. The love of Christ broke through their shells, and they were changed from the inside out, and they changed from their selfishness, and they devoted everything to Christ. But Judas never did. The others were elevated. Jesus took them to a higher plane, on higher ground. But Judas stayed there on the physical, earthly plane. And after three years, it became evident to him, I'm not getting where I want to be. Where is this kingdom that's been promised? Where's all the riches that I'm going to enjoy being a ruler in a kingdom? And so he's beginning here to see things aren't working out like I thought that they would. And so he began to seek for an opportunity to betray Jesus. That corruption was still in his heart. And you know, this is the way it always works there's no middle ground with Jesus. The Bible says you are either for him or you are against him. There's no middle ground with him. And so there in the upper room, Satan worked on him. He went out. He had already set up the price of the betrayal. He came into that room already having the price on his mind. We read this in Matthew chapter 26. Then one of the 12, called Judas Iscariot, went into the chief priest and said unto them, What will ye give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. And from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Now, those next verses are very familiar to us. Those are ones that we read at the Lord's Supper. And then we read in John what took place on that night. And we're all familiar with this as well. What did Jesus do on the night of the supper? Well, he brought the disciples as they came into that room, brought them all together, and Jesus began to wash their feet. And Jesus washed the feet of the one he knew would betray him. Now, isn't that something? I mean, do you see the the contrast here between the compassion and the love of, of Jesus for the kind of man that Judas was? And Judas was there letting Jesus wash his feet. He'd already made up the price for the betrayal, and Jesus washed his feet, and Jesus knew every single little detail about him. He knew what kind of man that he was. And I think about me, and I think about all of God's people, that, that it's nothing short of miraculous, that he saves us. He knows every detail of the corruption that's in our hearts. The Scripture says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us were hostile to God. And yet it tells us that Christ died for our sin, sins. And so there's Judas. He's still in that corruption. He conspired to betray Christ. And so we follow him. He goes out, and and he sought a convenient place to take Jesus down. Now, after the supper, Judas left to go to do his deed, and then Jesus went to his customary place in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And there's another striking contrast between the two. Jesus went to the customary place to pray. He was there pouring out his heart to God the Father. And then in chapter 18 in John, it says, And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with his disciples. See, Judas scoped out Jesus for the crime. He knew the usual places he would be because he'd been there with Jesus. He knew what Jesus would be doing. And so he plotted and he schemed to find an easy place where this betrayal would work. And while Jesus was in the garden, he earnestly prayed. And the Bible says that he was in such agony that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. But do you think that Judas ever cared for that agony? He'd already conspired for 30 pieces of silver. That was on his mind. How little that he actually thought of Christ and his blood. Between 10 and $20 dollars was the price of this betrayal. That's what he accepted for betraying Jesus. And you think about that. People sell out Jesus for very little, don't they? I mean, how much do we really value Christ? We don't really, people don't care enough to come and learn about him. Most, a lot of people, there's many people not in church today. Some of you don't come to church on Sundays. I mean, he sacrificed everything for us and we sacrifice nothing for him. The world has sold out Jesus. I mean, today's the Lord's day. And what are people doing? They're out doing the shopping. People are out on recreation day. It's, it's, it's another day. It's a fun day. And so people have put a price on Jesus' head. They do it every single Sunday. Judas had his method in mind. He would find Jesus in the garden. So all was arranged. So he led them to the usual evening place where Jesus could be found. Matthew twenty six forty seven. And while he had spake... Lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came. This is Jesus in the garden. Judas and one of, the, one of the twelve came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. The Judas kiss. You ever heard of that? Everybody knows about that, don't they? I mean, the kiss of deceit, the one that supposedly says, I love you, the universal embrace of love, kissing someone, but this is the one that hugs you and stabs you in the back at the same time. And he came to him and he said, Hail, Master, right up to the very end in that deception. He spoke to him and he said, Hail, Master, And the thought was that Judas would come into the garden. He would act like nothing was wrong. He would walk up and he would greet Jesus. And Jesus being none the wiser for what was taking place, that Jesus wouldn't cut and run. He wouldn't try to get away. And so Judas said, I'll kiss him and then you hold on to him. See, Judas knew the many times that Jesus that they had attempted to capture Jesus. And the Bible says he kept slipping away. He, kept, he got out of their grasp. They never were able to get a hold of him. Judas was aware of that. He accounted for that. And so in his thinking, a kiss would get him close enough that there's no way that Jesus can get away. And so he says, hold him fast. When I kissed him, you hold him fast so he doesn't get away. And this wasn't a quick kiss. He didn't come up and peck him on the cheek. The word here actually means that he kissed him repeatedly. Kissed him repeatedly. What a dastardly act that is. No one forgets that. Judas gave the universal sign of love, a kiss. And now he's universally known as a rotten scoundrel. That's why people don't name their kids after him. Well, this is not the end of the story for Judas. He's called the son of perdition. That means he was marked for destruction. And so lastly, we see his condemnation for the deed. In James chapter 1, it says, Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and when it, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Now, I don't know that it's, if it's possible to do a worse sin than what Judas did. He was with Christ. He saw the love and compassion. He saw the power that Christ had to do things, and then Judas was given some of that power. I mean, he, he was able to help people who so desperately needed it in that time. Judas was one who could help them, but in the end, he sold out it all. He sold it all out. Sold out his friends, sold out his best friend. Sold out the one who cared for him more than his mother and his father ever could. Jesus still called him friend when he came into the garden. In the 49th verse of Matthew 26, And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid their hands on Jesus and took him. Well, if sin brings forth death, then there's only one end to this story. At that very last moment, Jesus was still reaching out to him in love, but Judas refused. And the next step is death. Now, I want you to turn to Matthew 27. The worst person on the earth can be tormented by his conscience. Judas must have thought about what he had done. He must have thought about how little that he had gained. And in that moment when he he saw the disciples and they knew what he had done, can you imagine what a moment that must have been for him to stare into the face of those other disciples and all of them knowing what Judas had just done? How do you face that? Well, he's with them for three years, and and he he traveled with them, did did the same things that they did, but he turned his back on them, on Jesus and on them, and so there's no place for him to go now. Nobody's going to have anything to do with him. So look what he does in the 27th chapter, verse number 1. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned and that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. And the chief priests took... "'the silver pieces, and said, "'It's not lawful for to put them into the treasury "'because it's the price of blood.'" They were really holy guys. "'And they took counsel, "'and bought with them the potter's field "'to bury strangers in. "'Wherefore, that field was called "'the field of blood unto this day. "'Then was fulfilled that which spoken by Jeremy the prophet, "'saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, "'the price of him that was valued, "'whom they, the children of Israel, did value, "'and gave them for the potter's field.'" as the Lord appointed me. Now there, verse number 10 takes us back to Zechariah 11. And that prophecy said 30 pieces of silver would be cast to the potter. And that means that they took that money and they bought a field from a potter. They purchased this field to bury places in. And where they buried there were the Gentiles and they buried the strangers in Israel. They buried people that had no right and no money to be buried with the Jews. And so that prophecy was fulfilled. And once again, you see God orchestrating every move according to the plan. And so Judas suddenly has, well, maybe not suddenly, but he has an, has an attack of conscience. And the scripture says he repented. And we say, well, great, Judas repented of this. He, was he sorry for his sin? Did he say, I'm sorry that I've done this to the Son of God? I, I realize what a terrible thing that I've done. I realize that he truly is the Christ. And I should be following him, and I love him, and I want to serve him. That's not what he did. No, he didn't repent in that way. He never asked for forgiveness. He never asked Christ to forgive him or anyone else. This was not evangelical repentance. And the word that's used here is not the same one that we read about repenting and believing the gospel. This is a word that means that he felt bad. And it's a word that means he wanted to make himself feel better. And so to feel better and to soothe his conscience, he brought the money back and gave it to the priest. But it didn't make him feel better. It wasn't enough. And so the Bible says he hanged himself. The result of sin is death. In Acts chapter 1, it says that he hung himself. and Either the rope broke or the branch of the tree where he tied the rope around to hang himself, broke, whatever... But it broke, and the Bible says his body fell down and burst open, and all his bowels gushed out. That's the end of this apostle. He's the last in the list, but the first to die. And he didn't die as a martyr for Christ. He didn't become a part of the foundation of the church. His name is not revered. His name is not on that list of the most significant men in history. His name, his legacy is bitterness and betrayal. Now, there's some lessons that we can learn from Judas. And those lessons can take us all the way through another sermon. But I'm going to leave you with just one lesson. Jesus chose ordinary men. He took common men, he took faulty men, and he changed them into useful servants for the kingdom. The other 11 men gave themselves to Christ. They were touched by him. They gave up their selfishness. They were fully devoted to him. Judas had every advantage that they had. He saw the same miracles. He heard the same words. He did many of the same things. He, he'd been through all the teachings. Here is a man who got as close to Christ as you can possibly get, but he never trusted him for his salvation. Now today, I'm not preaching to 40,000 people that are in Rona Park. None of them are going to hear this message. I've only got you. And some of you are real close to Christ. Some of you have heard the messages. You heard the message today. You've heard the messages over and over again. Come to church, whatever. You hear these things. You are close to Christ. But you're going to end up like Judas. And that's because you hear the message, and before it's over, you are going to sell out Jesus for something that you think is more valuable than him. Somebody's going to do that today, and I hope that you don't. I hope that you don't continue to go on as you are. The Bible says the end of that is death. It's always destruction. But did you know this, that up to the very end, Jesus is still saying, Friend, why are you here? Think about that. Why are you here? Why did you come here today? Jesus is still asking that question. He'll ask it all the way up to the day that you end your life. Why are you here? And I sincerely hope you don't answer that question in the wrong way. Don't betray Christ. Believe him. Trust him as your Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we're able to spend in your word today. We're talking about serious matters here, the eternity of the soul the end of those who do not trust you as Savior is certain death, not only in this life, but in the life to come, eternal death in the fires of hell for those who do not believe. Lord, I pray that there's nobody here that's continuing to act like Jesus, to act, act like Judas, to act like his. the blood of Christ means absolutely nothing to them. The blood of Christ is not worth giving our all for to obtain. Help us to understand that you are that great, pearl of great price that we really need to know. And I pray that you lay it on someone's heart today to trust you as Savior. Speak to some soul today. May no one go from this room betraying you and selling you out for something they think is more valuable. Speak to us today, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.